Hi, everyone. Good morning. Uh, at least it's morning where we are. James and I are here and uh, glad you're tuning in to Doth Protest, a podcast on Reformation, history, and theology. I almost forgot what the podcast was on there. It took me a second. Uh, <laughs> think of it. That's how early it is. How are you, James? <laughs> I'm doing well. It's clearly not as early here as it is there, but I, I've been up for quite a while already. Uh, I mean, you're only an hour ahead where you are. So yes, but I've been up since five thirty my time. So uh, I'm well awake, well coffeeed, and 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 um, alert. Yeah, I meant to set an alarm, and I'm kind of on a break. We're you know Thanksgiving break. Right. Kind of started for for me. And so I'm kind of in the I'm already letting my brain kind of shift off into um whatever I don't know what day it is type mode. And um of course I just got back from the Dominican and uh I know you and I were you know direct messaging each other during the you know, and um so I'm back, feel good to be back, but felt good to have gone there for a week. And um um yeah. So have you been to any of the Caribbean? Um, I have been to, um, Aruba and I've been to Cancun, which I suppose technically could be considered Caribbean, although it's, uh, it's like the 51st state of, uh, right. right. It's basically America South, but yeah. Um, but no, I, I've been to South America. Um, um, but I haven't really done anything in any of those places with regard to missions. So, yeah, it's, um, this is the first, uh, mission trip i really done it was more of an exploratory trip but the you know the saint michael's the parish i rector of has had a uh, history of partnership with a cl- health clinic there and um the uh, D- the dominican development group um and um which uh, and we we've given to to scholarships to for for students there so it was really an ex- we we got to see a lot of schools uh we got to see that health clinic um and it was just uh, personally an uh, uh interesting trip for me to see that country and so um uh, you know it's it's i wouldn't call it a third world kind of, i mean like you think the first second third world tier systems kind of an outdated wave but it's still it's definitely a developing country right um which is interesting to see it's it's um I, i'm you know honestly I, i'm curious the next 25 years what dominican republic is going to look like it's uh it's you know it's there's a lot of extreme poverty but you also you but there's also relative i don't you know when you're talking about poverty on a global scale poverty is relative you know and you do i remember james you and i were texting on one of the days i was there and i I was like you know i kind of don't want to come back to the u.s because because people here have such a clarity clarity right about what really matters what a real problem is Uh, (laughs) so like i don't want to deal with some of the petty stuff my my country folk uh get all wrapped up so you know um but i'm glad to be back and yeah um, yeah you you found i'm sure what what my dad found when he went um we have we've had a long-standing relationship with um a clergy couple or a a priest and his wife in in haiti and uh my dad went down there in the 90s and someone said why why would you go to such a god-forsaken place and when my dad got back he said haiti is many things but god-forsaken is not one of them wow yeah um and it's, you know, the the people in Haiti and on the other side of the island in the Dominican Republic are, I'm sure, deeply faithful. Um, and in, in a way that we probably can't understand, deeply satisfied yeah. uh, in their in their life in Christ, um, more so than we who constantly bicker and moan about uh, material things. Um 
that's I mean, that's just evidence to me, uh, at least to a certain extent of the um, the idolatry of um, the consumer culture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, and, and it's not that they I mean. I know parts of the global South. Um, I, I think it's probably the case for a lot of Anglicans and Africa. The Anglicanism, Anglican churches in Africa are very vibrant, very growing. I would also describe the churches in Dominican vibrant. Um, I was surprised that a lot of the churches just have a handful of folks. Um, it wasn't the picture I had of what, cause I, you know, I always thought, well, it's the, the U S is, um, so secularized and whatnot. And we become a spiritualist nation. What in, you know, in other places, the places where, where people have real, real concerns. Like we just thought like that they probably have, um, but so I, and I, I don't think the numbers is a sign of anything bad there, but I think it, it's just interesting the way they're facing challenges too. I'll just say. Oh, sure. And um, you know, I'm still learning a lot of the history, but a lot of it's the Spanish conquest. And so I know Roman Catholicism probably does have a greater uh, hold, I guess, in, in that region. Oh, sure. um, but, but all to say is for listeners and, and for friends of the show, of course, to keep uh, um, the churches in the Dominican and, and, and I mean, in just Central America and the Caribbean and in prayer, because I know they have lots of challenges, um, political, social, economic, natural, natural disasters. Um, so but but there it really is um, met a lot of uh, pastors who are just uh, overjoyed with their work um uh, mm-hmm. and i could not see myself to be very honest if i had the challenges they do uh be <laughs> exuding that type of joy <laughs> so right. Right. but yeah um so uh we should probably get into the podcast we've burned up some time sorry i went on about that but um oh it's good it's good you and james and i are here to this is part two of the 95 theses, not the ones that Luther nailed on a door 500 years ago that in Wittenberg that started the Reformation. This is the 95 theses from the Episcopal Fellowship. Um, what is it called again? I'm sorry. The Episcopal <laughs> Fellowship for Renewal, I believe. The Episcopal Fellowship for Renewal. And bef- and we we did like the first third. For, no, I'm, I'm on their website as, as we're speaking. So. We did yeah. 32 of them last time, I believe. Okay. Yeah, we did 32. And so we're going to continue. I, I actually found I have the website pulled up now. I also found an article that I'm going to put a link in the show notes. It's um, it's an article from the North American Anglican, which I'm pretty sure came out since we did our first episode. And I remember yeah. the first episode, I was like, I didn't know. I kind of um, read between the lines of the history behind this this statement of theses and what this movement was. Um, and I was not to brag, I was kind of right about it. <laughs> I mean, it's the basic history. You know, there's, there's the right. social media account of re- redeemed zoomer, a young person who wants to see renewal in the mainline Protestant churches. Um, renewal as, as he means along biblical Orthodox lines. And so right. he's Presbyterian. Um, and then he has, uh, he's, but he's been connect. He's, uh, he's reached out to other groups as well and so this is where the episcopal group comes from um but the title of the article is a call to arms to restore the episcopal church the mission of the episcopal fellowship for renewal um and it's just some good info about that there um i think that call to arms um article actually predated the posting of the theses oh did it it says october no it says october 9th 
that's pretty recent, isn't it? Yeah, but our our episode, our last episode was uh was since then, I think. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. So the theses were after that? Yeah, I think yeah, so. Okay. Well, it's a good article for uh for listeners. I'll put a link in the show notes by Wes Morgan. So in uh, my diocese, actually. Oh, is he? Okay. Yeah. Um, and so We'll continue on with our thoughts about some of these. Um, let's kind of read through. I mean, last time we kind of just read through, you know, four or five at a time. I was I looked at them last night um, in preparation for this episode, not just to make a mental note. We'll see if I remember my mental notes uh, about some of these because uh, I did have some thoughts about some of them. But so thirty three. Churches should spend more time talking about eternal life in Christ than about contemporary political issues. 34, the aim of priests should be to teach their congregations Christian doctrine rather than casting doubts about such doctrines into the minds of the faithful. 35, the church should be more concerned about theological doctrine than about political and social ideologies. 36, the church should be united in essential theological beliefs and grant individual Christian liberty in non-essential beliefs rather than the inverse. I'll read one more. 37, preaching about God's love without preaching about God's holiness and wrath towards sin is just as bad as the inverse. So I mean, I, I agree, essentially agree with all those. Um, uh, I guess I'll be devil's advocate for a second um and i want to see how you respond to this james so those first two number 33 and 34 and if listeners want if i don't know if listeners want to have a copy of this pulled up but i, I get it i listen to podcasts on my drives on my walks i don't have i don't have my my mocky pie when i listen to pie that's fine mm-hmm. but I'll, so I'll repeat them 33 is churches should spend more time talking about eternal life in christ and about contemporary political stuff 34 um well, and then I'll skip to 35. 35 says the church should be more concerned about theological doctrine than political and social ideologies. So um, someone might say to this, though, James, um, uh, they might say a couple things, but they might say, yes, eternal life is important, but we can't be like escapist. Like we can't just um, turn religion into, I mean, it's kind of like the Marx critique, right? Just like an opiate to keep you looking at the future while people are suffering here and now. There's work to be done here and now, um, you know, case in mm-hmm. point, in the, in the Dominican, right? Or even in our own country. Um, it's, you know, we can't separate everything is political in some way. Um, we can't separate ourselves from how we live together as people and how we govern. Um and so we can't just like um, be blissful, be blissfully unaware, ignorant, or not participate in politics, especially since Christians have a, you know, a mission to, you know, yeah, help the poor and the needy, whatever. But also just to, to you know, we 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 believe in a we have a mater- material religion, right? We're not, right? Um, so um, you know, we live in a material world. And uh, it's, it's, I'm not yeah. trying to sing Madonna here, but, right. but you know, what, right. what would be your response to that? <clears throat> so, I mean, I, that's a fair, that's a fair comment and a fair critique. However, if we are reading article or, uh, or thesis 33 churches should spend more time talking about eternal life in Christ and about contemporary political issues than taking it at its word, which is that eternal life in Christ is ultimately far more important than any squabble 
that we have today. Um, and political issues has become kind of a buzzword for the hot button topics, right? So this is generally speaking going to be human sexuality, abortion, things like that, on which recently um, the Episcopal Church as a whole has taken a hardline perspective on human sexuality, um, but sort of grassroots, the Episcopal Church is known for its support for abortion as well. So the way I read this, trying to read it charitably, is that people are, the, the thesis is saying that, that clergy are spending far more time preaching polemically, politically, partisanly mm-hmm. from the pulpit, as opposed to preaching about what life in Christ is like in the new creation. And life in Christ in a new creation um, is not the Democratic Party platform. Right, right. (laughs) No, I mean, you know, at different eras in the life of the Episcopal Church, we've been known as the Republican Party at prayer and the Democratic Party at prayer, neither of which is fair. I actually like to say we used to be the Republican Party at prayer. Now we're the Democratic Party investments. <laughs> there you go. Considering yeah. it's the clergy class who are much more <laughs> to, right. politically to right. the left than the, a lot of the laity. <laughs> so. Right. Or as the old saying goes, uh, how can you tell um, or what, what's the dividing line between uh, the, the Republicans, and the Democrats and church, the altar rail? Um, yeah, <laughs> I've heard uh, that one. Yeah. Yeah. So, but 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 basically, the the idea here is that um, the most important things need to be kept most important, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is not that uh, God saves you from unjust political systems, or that you need to go out and destroy unjust political systems. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that God has come in the person of Jesus to save you from your sins, to destroy the powers of sin, death, and the devil for you. Mm -hmm. That is not a matter of political or social ideology. That's simply a matter of good gospel preaching. Right. And it has everything, I think, to do with the world we inhabit and the collective life we live too, because we were, were, it is all destined for that restoration and renewal by God. And so, you know, we and and having that hope now enables us, enlivens us to live as gospel people. Um, and um, you know, it's it's yeah, that's for me. It's like I I again, like I used to be a much more politically minded person, I guess, than I am. I mean, I was a political science major, and I've always just found just that the study of how you know people live, you know. <laughs> the study of politics government i've always found it very interesting um and uh i i do th- you know think though that there's a way to fetishize that i mean there's a lot of the christians who are concerned about social justice uh i, I feel like they do get short-sighted in a way um because they see it as the end-all be-all it's so tempting to collapse the mm-hmm. eschatological cosmic to to to, to forget the eschatological dimension of our faith and um, see it all as, as just a a straightforward partisan program. Right. 
All right, let's go on with a few more. 38, to make sin merely about... <laughs> this is con- it's kind of connected to the thing we were talking about. To make sin merely about systemic injustices reduces the gospel to an ineffective political message with no spiritually redemptive power. Mm-hmm. Social justice is an important part of the gospel, but not the whole of the gospel, and it too often has become a euphemism for a partisan political agenda. 40... And see, I like the way they worded those because it was saying like, you can't talk about this because no, it just, it just gave you a statement mm-hmm. and it was um matter of fact, it just, it just described something. It wasn't prescriptive. It was descriptive, but we right. read that and see why it's, it's um these are things to avoid. Right. <laughs> so, right. right. 40 priests should not. Priests should strive not to give their congregations the impression that God makes no moral demands of them. 41 parishes should hold their members to high personal moral standards. And 42 priests should not hesitate to preach against personal sin. So the last few, I remember on the last podcast, the first part we did on these, um, I felt that a lot of it was very, there's a moralistic tone to a lot of these. Yeah. And, you know, like the, we were talking about Mockingbird in our pre-show convo. Um, I don't know if a Mockingbird person was a, was a part of composing these at all because <laughs> it wouldn't right. have this tone if it did. Right. Um, grace is not. There's no. There's not really a lot of things about grace in here, and an awful lot about more. And like for instance, forty one, or sorry, forty forty says priests should not priests should strive not to give their congregations the impression that God makes no moral demands of them. I mean. I agree with that, but there's a certain way to 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 preach a, to preach about what God demands, and isn't that the fault of so much of the liberal social justice Christians is that they have focused so much on the moral demands, the moral demands that they see, which are not the moral demands that conservative evangelicals may preach about. Right. But you know, so it's um, I don't know. Uh, this that tone bothers me. Well, yeah, and, and um, going back to 37, preaching about God's love without preaching about God's holiness and wrath towards sin is just as bad as the inverse. Sure, but it seems like um, the inverse is what's in view here for some of these, that God's holiness and wrath towards sin are to be preached, but there's no clear indication that you move from law to gospel in mm-hmm. sermon so that people aren't left in that place of devastation where they recognize their sinfulness, but they don't recognize that they have a savior. Right. Um, I, I find that to be uh, deeply problematic. And that's what tends to be the, um, the method of preaching within um, a lot of conservative evangelical Episcopal churches is this sort of high standard, high personal moral standard, um, preaching against personal sin, but there's often um, not much preaching about the fact that God in the person of Jesus atoned for personal sin too. Well, that's funny. You see, you, you described these churches you're talking about as conservative evangelical Episcopal. I don't know many there's not a lot of Episcopal churches that are conservative and there's certainly not a lot that are evangelical. So the ones you do find it's moralism. That's depressing to know about. (laughs) Well, it's, I'm not saying that I I can't make a blanket statement because I don't know them all. Right. But but the tendency within American evangelicalism is toward a moralistic preaching 
because they treat preaching as if it is an av- advice column for the week. Yes. Like here's your things to do this week. When in point of fact, yes, preach against immorality, reveal God's holy law in its perfection and in its clear condemnation of sin, but then also don't leave people there. Yes. Because if you do, then people are going to go home and think one of two things. Well, I'm glad I'm not like that tax collector. Right. Yep. Or they're going to think, I can't go back to church because I recognize all of these things within myself and clearly I'm not worthy of God. Right. Then there's, you're just left in despair. Right. Self-righteousness or despair tends to be the only way that you get the, the only two outcomes of strict law preaching. Yes. I firmly believe that. And I'm, I'm amazed that, um, the law gospel distinction is lost on so much of Christianity because it is um, so like, yes, is it explicitly in scripture? We could argue that, but there, what is in scripture is that all fall short of the glory of God. And what is in scripture is the promise of God in Christ uh, is your hope, right? And your salvation, and the one in because through Christ God justifies the ungodly, mm-hmm. uh, which includes all of us. Yeah. Uh, there's a recognition of our fallenness, and there's a recognition um, that salvation uh, we can be assured of our salvation. And so churches that don't want to preach that or preach that holistically, um, yeah, they're either legalistic. Or, yeah, I guess you could say they're squishy because they don't want to touch, like, law at all. Uh, but gospel doesn't make sense without the law. And and law without gospel is, of course, uh, absolutely um, devastating and soul-crushing, as James has pointed out. Well, and, and the other thing to add to that is that uh, in the letter to the Hebrews, we hear that the law has no power to affect what it commands. Mm-hmm. You can't, the law doesn't say do it and then you do it right the law says do it and you say oh crap <laughs> right um so it doesn't and paul says talks about how the law kills too i'm totally right oh yeah first but i believe it's in romans right right uh this uh the law the letter kills but the spirit brings life mm-hmm. um so so you know like i'm thinking about honestly you know both of us are in parish ministry both of us have the revised common lectionary on sundays and so i'm thinking about when i'm preaching this next sunday and i'm thinking about how many pulpits are going to turn into a bully pulpit on sunday when we have the separation of the sheep and the goats mm-hmm. because so many people are going to read that passage and say jesus says that you had better visit people in prison you better visit people who are sick you better do these things or else without reading the first part, which is the gospel, which is come receive the inheritance that has been set aside for you since the foundation of the world. Mm -hmm. If it's been set aside for you since the foundation of the world, that speaks to election and election here speaks to unconditional election that you are not chosen based on what you do, but rather that what comes out of you is most naturally the fruit that Jesus explains in the following verse Mm -hmm. that we are, Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, 
for good works. That's mm-hmm. Luther's freedom of a Christian. So that you know, this passage is, is a perfect example of law and gospel, and yet so many people are going to completely elide the gospel into the law. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm deeply concerned about that, and that's why I'm very allergic to people wanting to give the law, you know, pride of place even above the gospel. I think that's deeply problematic. Yeah. Yes. Um, number, okay, no, number 43. Incumbents should not be denied the tenure of the office of rector. Bishops should abolish the office of priest in charge for all but interim situations. I know you and I talked about that in the pre, we'll get to it in a moment because I was kind of confused that about the level of concern over this. Um, but I think you've, in your environment, you've seen more of what, what that concern is pertained to. So what we'll, but, but let me read a few more. Um, all parishes should present a clear theological message consistent with scripture, the doctrines of historic Anglicanism and the examples example of the early church. 45 homilists should not hesitate to preach theological dogma from the pulpit. Um, Let's just stop there because I, <laughs> sorry. So 45, um, I agree. I mean, theological dogma, that may sound like, a, like, you know, people get this negative image perhaps of dogma, especially theological dogma being a bunch of um, binding, um, you know, heavily worded things about what, you know, you must believe. And so, you know, shoving it with, it's, you know, you just dog being dogmatics, like shoving that kind of thing down someone's throat. But obviously dogma means teaching. And even the right. people who who say you know we should not we should not be heavy on dogma we shouldn't be dogmatic they themselves are being dogmatic because they do believe in certain principles that they should that they live by and want to communicate and teach to others right so that their argument falls apart if they're gonna but but you know I do think there is a certain when we had Ian Paul on remember he mentioned there is a certain way of teaching our teachings, our doctrines, our dogma, there is a certain way you shouldn't go about it, which is like um, <laughs> a very overly scholastic way of, of right. you know, whether it's your, your, whether it's in a presentation of the, your theology or, or your, or in your proclamation from the pulpit, it's, there's a certain, there's just a certain kind of way you want to avoid, you know, a lifeless drive form of it that you, we don't want to, you know, do. Yeah. Um, uh, 44, of course, all prayers should present a clear theological message consistent with scripture, doctrines of historic Anglicanism, the example of the early church. I, I'm, I'll tell you right now, when I'm visiting a town and I'm going to, I'm trying to find an Episcopal church, um, or a church, but I prioritize Episcopal church to visit. I like to see, I like to see a statement or, or, or not a or just a you know a, a, a belief. it doesn't have to be a long huge page it takes you like three hours to scroll down and read but just something right. about a set of be- what they stand for what they believe and if it's consistent with you know a biblical Christianity so that's I do look for that when I'm visiting somewhere and it, because that has an appeal to me because I know I'm going to be edified hopefully um, I mean whether they confused long gospel or not it's one thing but you know i i know i'm sure. gonna be I, I, there's i have i'm likely to be i'm actually an experienced church right 
as church is supposed to be. <laughs> so, that, you know, I get that concern. And also, um, any thoughts on those ones? And then if not, anything about the incumbents thing, about the priest and about getting rid of the priest in charge? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, uh, Gerhard Ferdy wrote a book called Theology is for Proclamation. And the point of the book, so I have been told, it's on my list of things to read, but is is that theology is not off limits for the pulpit. And point of fact, preaching is about explaining the truth of the gospel, which is inherently theological, right? Mm-hmm. So like that, the idea that that is common in many Episcopal churches today is my people don't want to hear theology. They want to hear praxis. They want to hear about what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, when in point of fact, a lack of preaching um, theology, dogma, doctrine, what that ends up doing is it robs people of the grounding for their thanksgiving for why they are living the way that they're living. Right. Or trying to live, striving to live. Mm-hmm. Um so that's what I would say about that. I think that you're right that every, I mean, I got no problems with number 44. Every Episcopal parish should present a clear theological message that is consistent with scripture, historic Anglicanism, and the example of the early church. On the whole, I mean, of course, we, we talked right, about we, last time, early church can right. mean more than one thing, right? I mean, early church could also mean Marcion. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, but overall, so, yes, I get it. I right. get what they mean. But that's that's the trouble with the imprecision of of terms like the early church. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one that that really struck me as I think being remarkably well thought out and well intentioned is number forty three, which is if you go into a parish, many dioceses now have created this category of priest in charge. And many of those dioceses have a subcategory of priests in charge, which is uh, what well, some some of them will call it rector time certain, which functions the same way, which is you're there for a certain amount of time guaranteed. After that, if the parish decides to get rid of you, they can decide to get rid of you. If you decide to, to leave, you can decide to leave. So many Many folks who advocate for this position, what they do is they say, oh, well, it actually protects both the parish and the clergy. But um, the problem is it tends to put the clergy in a very um, uncomfortable position. Right. I know firsthand from uh, conversations with other folks and whatnot that when so say take my take me, for example. When God determines that uh, I need to move on and be, uh, you know, be in another parish, if he calls me to be the rector of another parish, I go there. And if I'm going there as a priest in charge, I've got a wife and two kids. I'm providing for them because my wife is currently staying at home with our kids and doing a little work on the side. But her primary uh, job, which is uh, unbelievable and amazing, is to be you know at home with our kids, which is wonderful. But that's not the primary income. So if mm-hmm. I'm going to this place and I know for a fact that I can be there for a year, 
then, okay, that's great. But then at the end of the year, we have to assess. And if the the congregation is not happy with me or if they want to hold something over my head, then they have that chip in their hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's never been the case within Anglicanism up until like the last 20 years, basically. Mm-hmm. Because part of Anglican polity is that like the, the parish can't fire the rector. It has to be the bishop removes the, the rector. Mm-hmm. That way, there is a balance of power. The rector is the one in charge of the parish. The vestry is in charge of the finances. So there's checks and balances. But if the vestry is in charge of the rector, which functionally is that's what this is, then that creates an imbalance of power. The rector can't encourage things that are areas where change is perhaps needed. Um, a great example would be, you know, if you were to go to a parish and see that they were doing communion of the unbaptized, that's canonically and theologically wrong. Mm-hmm. That would need to be changed immediately. But if you go in as priests in charge, then you are not able to do what's necessary, perhaps, because they have this chip that they can hold over you. They have this thing that they can hold over you saying, well, after a year, if you want to do that, then we're going to go ahead and remove you. Yeah. So. I find it deeply problematic, and I actually think that's one of the strongest theses on this because it actually shows rubber meeting the road for what what protection is needed for clergy. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'd have to hear more. I mean, I, I'm grateful my position is rector, um, and yeah, I can get what you're saying. Like, it gives um, it gives the, congreg- the, 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 the proper levels of power and checks and balances are perhaps not there in the priest and charge system. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it was interesting when I was sort of going through these theses, cause I'm like, that's, it, it was all like on these, um, this is a very, I guess, practical would be the word just a very, it just happened to kind of sh- show up out of the blue. Like I'm reading through all these things on sin and death and the devil and eternal life and Christ and salvation. All of a sudden, Oh, this thing we do <laughs> can't have this right. anymore. So, I was like, Wait, what is yeah. this about? And then I remember yeah. like asking you about it because you know. Right. Um so uh okay, number I'm totally how much time do you have still, James? I'm good. All right. I don't know if we'll get through all of them today. There might be part three, but let's just keep going. I'll be through a bunch and okay, 40. Um okay, 46. It is crucial for every parish member to be directed toward having a vibrant living faith in Jesus Christ. We need to get to know him for who he truly is, as was taught in Scripture. 47, there should be limits on theological diversity within the church, especially when it reaches the point of denying the essentials of the faith as divine by our historic creeds. 48, children are to be taught the Scriptures, theology, and catechism of the Book of Common Prayer so that they know why they come to church what to do whilst in church and how to live their faith outside the church. 49, it is necessary that parish leaders teach Christian apologetics to children and adults so that they know how to defend the Christian faith before others. And 50, confirmands, confirmands are not to be confirmed if they do not profess belief in the essentials of Christianity. I agree with all those. Um, the 48, that stuck out to me. Um, the use of the catechism of the book of Com- from the book of common <laughs> prayer that's found of course couldn't tell you the page number I don't have one in front of me but it's toward the back of the book not the 39 articles which are important of course and James and I profess you know 
we subscribe to those, but there isn't, right. it's called an outline of faith and it's found in the book of common Getting prayer. On page 845. 845. And a lot of, um, I mean, there's lots of methods of teaching and forming Christians. Um, my parish has godly play, which is for like, that's more foundational that, I mean, obviously the outline of faith is very foundational, but this is like, um, young children. And I like it because it uses kind of a semi-Montessori method of, and, it, and it engages kids through storytelling. And what stories are they telling? Well, the the narratives of the scripture. And so that's just a really way to creatively and imaginatively open kids up to the world of scripture where they'll, 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 they will encounter Jesus. But the outline of faith, um, you know, I used that when I taught eighth and ninth grade confirmants. Because it's at their reading level, it, it is the essentials. It's the one one of what we believe in. It provides an opportunity for them to to learn it, to ask any questions they have about it. And um, I I use that as a basis, the outline of faith, um, because it's important. They, I mean, if they're coming to church, especially, I mean, I'm, I meet some people in their 40s, 50s, 60s who don't know some basic things about what Christians believe because it's never been taught to them. Right. And would you, would you do, I mean, would you have a kid get inaccurate information in a science class? Do you want to teach, um, bogus math to, or, uh, you know, do you want to teach alchemy in a science class? Do you want to teach, right. like, do you want to teach that, you know, that slavery never existed? I mean, no, you don't want to teach false things to people. So you don't same when it comes to the catechesis, uh, and, and, um, of people of Christian, of, of people, in the church and we need to te teach them the right things. And so, yeah, that's uh, my, my two pennies on that. Um, any, and I did, I did like the, the one on apologetics too, but I, is there any comments on that one, James? Yeah. Um, so as someone who has two kids, both of whom are, um, both of whom uh, are very active, um, you know, we're teaching them what to do. We're teaching them what we believe. Um, we're, you know, we're teaching them um, uh, the the essentials of the faith. I mean, one way that we do it is um, Eleanor, our oldest, we read the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a delight um, and uh, teaches good biblical theology, um, which is really cool. And it's, it's very accessible for kids. Um, I was reading uh, Mike Bird's book, seven things that I wish every Christian knew about the Bible the other day. And uh, Mike, who has been on the podcast said, I really wish um, that I had written the Jesus storybook Bible, not just because I would have made loads of money, but also because it's just really good. Uh, and I was like, that's, that's about the best endorsement you can give. Um, but uh, the point, the point of that um, digression is to say that um I wonder if behind this, there is a little bit of crotchetiness about children in church. Um, and that's me coming at it from my vantage. So I don't want to impute to them what um, I'm concerned about. Sure. But um, I, I agree with the face value comments of this particular thesis, number 48. I just want to be clear that like, as I've heard folks say before, and as I have said to folks at church before, if you're if you're not crying, you're dying. Like we want to have kids in church. 
Um, well, that gives me relief because we, you know, the the couple babies we have are crying all the time, and so <laughs> it gives me hope for the future. <laughs> I mean, of course, that's you know, that's that's a, a reduction to absurdity. But the the point is <laughs> right. that like having children in church is so very deeply important, even if they make a little bit of noise. The, the, the fact that they are hearing the word of God read and proclaimed, that they're receiving the edible gospel of the Eucharist, mm-hmm. that is essential. I mean, that's Paul in Romans 10. Um, faith, I think, it's, or maybe it's, yeah, I think it's Romans 10 or maybe it's 12. Um, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, right? I mean, that's essential for, for children. So have them in church, but yes, teach them what to do as well in church so that when they start understanding and start learning to behave a bit, then, um, then, then that's all to the good, but yeah. Yeah. And I, I do like number, uh, 50 about, um, I'm sorry, <clears throat> number 49 about the importance of apologetics. I think that's ever important now. Um, yeah, we don't have, um, I guess the, the, the new atheist movement, which is big in the two thousands of, you know, Richard Dawkins and all those popular authors who, who were trying to tell everyone to, that religion and God is just, you know, forget all that. We don't need that stuff anymore. Um, there, those people aren't out there, but I, we have become so secular and post-Christian in our culture so much. A lot of people have come to see religion as like, not bad, but something, if you do that, that's good for you, but I'm going to do this. Right. Um, you know, and if you're Buddhist and that speaks to you good, if that's Hindu and that speaks to you, it's like, well, that attitude is, is ultimately not sustainable for the church. And that doesn't mean Christians need to go around telling every, you know, here's your chance. You know, you either going to go to hell or believe the right thing. No, we're not saying that, but you know, there's been a whole lot of, there's been centuries of work in apologetics going back to Justin Martyr who lived in the second century, who knew, who knew people who knew the disciples of Jesus, you know, who, who made arguments, philosophical arguments for the truth of Christianity. We have a long tradition of this. And in you know recent years, I mean, I you can, I mean, I was just talking to a priest who grew up atheist who they came to the faith through reading C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> apologetics, of course, that's it's that term meaning the both the persuasion of the persuasion persuading others of the truths of the Christian faith and and defending them. Um, it is important because it's like. If, if every single religion has some good things to say, and it's really just a matter of what speaks most to you, well, that covers up the fact that, well, there is a truth though, right? I mean, and, and you know, why why be Christian? I, can, I think there are reasons that we could, should be, that you could, should be Christian over other religions. And we could get into, for me, I think like the, the case for the resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's a very strong, compelling case. Um, you know, there, there's a, I, I was just seeing something. I posted this on Easter. There, uh, there was uh, what's that YouTube channel? Info. Info. Um, not Infowars. That's like some right wing. <laughs> I was about to be like, okay, yeah. <laughs> no, this is um. <laughs> what is it? All infographs. infographs. Oh, okay. Um, they do all these interesting videos about like history culture politics military all the all this very info infor, informational videos that they do like fun animation too they did one on like the resurrection of jesus it was like 30 minutes long and it that weighed in like what a lot of skeptics would say what a lot of people 
what a lot of people would say that to try to say the resurrection was not a you know actual thing it's just something christians believe and it's not a real thing mm -hmm. um it presented the case the case that actually you know that the skeptics have a lot of problems with, with you know with the different theories they say i mean there's enough there's there are certain just minimal attested minimal facts it's sometimes called there's this a certain set of attested things mm -hmm. um surrounding the empty tomb and how it was written about in the scripture and the fact that the movement of the church rose um that that rule out a lot of skeptical theories and so um unless you have a bias against supernatural event you basically on a rational logical level you have to like a seed you have to you have to uh you have you can't deny the plausibility of the resurrection actually happening right and i was being soft in the way i said that i mean but there's actually like a very strong very strong argument for the resurrection of jesus of nazareth and so like stuff like that i, I feel if more people in the pews it's like and you know i'm I, we do some apologetics in my parish like we're doing a tim keller video series right now like if more people knew that though the you know if more people were exposed to that they'd be like wow you know case mm -hmm. for christ is a good example i think you know yeah. that was the first time i had heard about like that you know there's a good case for the resurrection and there's sources outside the bible from around the time of the bible that mentioned this person named jesus there are things i mean apologetics i think do have value we should have room for them in the church i don't i don't think belief is more than just rationally assenting to something but and apologetics may not work on everyone because, and I think that's because the person's will is stubborn and the people, person who's, you know, doesn't want to believe is they're going to keep pushing back no matter how many facts you throw in their face. But right. all to say is I think, especially for the faithful and the people who are looking into the church, but not sure if they want to, you know, apologetics is very valuable. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't I agree. Like I went on for like five minutes there, but. No, 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 that's, that's, but that's, that's important because I think what, what, um, you know, the, the old Robin Williams, uh, skit about 10 reasons why I'm an Episcopalian, you know, you don't check your brain at the door, but yeah, that I hate that t-shirt. Oh, I, I, I really, I really don't like it either. And I, I mean, it was, a, it's it was just a, like, I would not want to be Episcopalian if this is like, if it's just all about having fun and not taking anything seriously. I mean, I like to have fun and not take everything seriously, but right. I, I, but, there's but, no assurance said, in a faith that has nothing to say. You right, know. right. And he says you don't check your brain at the door, but that goes both ways. I mean, it you know, what tends to be the case there is that Episcopalians are are good with evolution, which is like, okay, cool, fine. But but also there's the reality that there is a logic and there is a, a reasoning um and and uh, a clear presentation of the gospel that is historically verifiable. Mm-hmm. That's behind us. I mean, Stanley Habermas is, uh, you know, he wrote his, um, he was a long time. Oh, Gary, Gary Habermas. Not Stanley. I meant Gary. Thank you. Yes. Gary Habermas, who was, uh, you know, the longtime professor at Liberty University, wrote his dissertation on the historical evidence of the resurrection. Um, he was deeply, deeply um, influential on people like um, Lee Strobel, Case for Christ. Mm -hmm. Craig Blomberg is another one who's written heavily about this. I'm reading a book right now by Bill Mounts of um, the Greek textbook fame yes. um, called Why I Trust the Bible that mm -hmm. is really, really helpful for, for this very thing, which is addressing um, 
some of the concerns that are going to be brought up by people who are not raised in the faith and have heard and are parroting some of the concerns about, you know, the reliability of the Gospels or things like that. And there's been so much out there that have tried to debunk the Bible in popular culture. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, maybe not. I can't think of anything too recently, but I remember like the Zeitgeist movie from 10 years ago, Da Vinci Code from 20 years ago. Right. Bart, Bart Ehrman has made a splash on the Barnes and Noble bookshelves, you know, people, you know, and they think that's the Bible scholar. I mean, he's the number one Bible scholar, right? Because I see him at Barnes and Noble. Right. Uh, <laughs> if you, if you, by the way, just because I think this is how important I think apologetics are. If you're interested in Bart Ehrman and you think that Bart Ehrman is a good textual critic, you need to read the work of Daniel Wallace, Resisting yes. the Corruption of the New Testament, mm-hmm. because Daniel Wallace and Bart Ehrman have actually they debated, debated yeah. one another. And um, when you hear Bart Ehrman talk, he's convincing. But if you think logically about what he's saying, he actually makes broad sweeping statements. Yeah. Much of he, which he, is not he's got a re- it's all re- rhetoric, really. It's right. a, he's, right. a, he's an excellent orator. Rhetoric orator yes <laughs> so sorry this turned into an apologetics podcast um, yeah we should just start maybe we should rename the show uh doth protest a podcast on reformation apologetics history and theology <laughs> sure <laughs> though my doctoral advisor does not like apologetics um but he actually does he just doesn't know it. that's what i'm that's what my and if he's listening to that he'd be like whoa whoa drew slow down <laughs> well there there are he actually does but he doesn't right? what's that so there, there are apologetics and apologetics, right? He I says mean, these just... arguments are useful when egregious things are being said about the faith. And so, Doctor right. Henley, I love you, and if you're listening, that's exactly why I think. But like, that's I, I feel like all the circumstances I see where apologetics are is when they are trying to correct the egregious things. Maybe right. I'll edit that part out. No, 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 no Doctor Henley and I, like, we have a close relationship. We can say these. Uh, so, <laughs> so um, okay. Number 50. Oh, no, we already did 50. 51, people with uh, agnostic, atheistic, Hindu, Buddhist, pagan, Wiccan, Satanist, or otherwise non-Christian beliefs must not be admitted to or allowed to remain in positions of leadership, teaching, or authority in the church. Mm-hmm. 52, priests should not invite non-believers to receive the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, lest they bring judgment upon themselves. That phrase is in quotes at the end, because that's from Scripture. 53, the church does not have the authority to prevent the Eucharist from being offered to believers in its churches on any grounds other than excommunication or lack of Trinitarian baptism. 54, churches and their congregations ought to regularly engage in evangelism. 55, the point of missionary work should be to address people's spiritual needs by telling them about Christ and the good news of his resurrection, in addition to attending to their physical needs. 56, the church must do social justice work on its own terms, not on the terms of any secular political factions. Christ and his true gospel are to be the primary motivations for the charity and social justice work done by the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's stop there. I think I I don't really have much to say about. I agree with all these. I do think it's, you know, when when you pray for someone who comes to your doors who off the street, or just take time to listen to them, mm-hmm. but don't give them anything. Sometimes that makes the world of a difference to their day. Mm-hmm. Um, they're used to um, a lot of people that come up. They're used to getting the little the little tiny bit of things like 
that someone may be able to give them in the moment. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really have anything transformational about the, like it is like prayer or fellowship mm-hmm. or just caring about them f- from your, from your heart does. Mm-hmm. So, um, 57, the words of scripture and the creed should not be changed to insert gender inclusive or gender neutral language that changes the meaning of the original text. Likewise, the hymnal and the book of common prayer should not be altered for similar purposes, such as the rites of holy matrimony being rewritten to insert marriage between two men, two women, or anything else outside the union of one man and one woman into one flesh. Uh, 58, all are to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not in any alternative such as creator, redeemer, sustainer, sustainer, nor should feminine pronouns be applied to God in these texts as that renders their baptism invalid and ineffective. Also, I wouldn't go... There's a lot to a little bit more to unpack there. Um, if someone said you, I don't, I wouldn't go as far as to say the baptism is invalid if they like did a somewhat gender neutralized form. But I think if they were to substitute the Trinity with creator, redeemer, sustainer, whether or not that renders the baptism invalid, it's still a problematic thing to have in liturgy because the whole Trinity creates the whole Trinity redeems and the whole Trinity sustains. I mean, it's almost that the, the the theological thinking behind saying creator redeemer and sustainer is flawed because it doesn't understand that. I mean, it's, it's like taking persons of the Trinity as almost as if they have different roles to play or something, uh, which is inadequate understanding of the Trinity. Um, It's either modalism or partialism. It, yeah, I guess partialism or modalism, right? And um, and it and it and it doesn't see how the Trinity is, has a oneness and and is about interrelation and working together and having one mind and one will. Um, rather, it's just about assigning these different. It's very crude in a way. Mm-hmm. It's very pagany. It's very it's very like going back to the pantheon. Like that's it's it's very unsophisticated and crude, and so. Whenever I hear creator, redeemer, and sustainer, because they want to be gender inclusive, I just cringe. Um, right. So don't do that, clergy. Do not do well, that. And, and, uh, I'm not trying to be a, here I am starting to sound like the, taking the tone that I'm criticizing uh, this fellowship group for having, but yeah. Um, no, I, I think that's fair. So going back a little bit to, it's it's necessary to say that they are absolutely right on target when they said that priests should not invite the unbaptized and non-believers to receive the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, lest they bring judgment on themselves. That's from first Corinthians 11. Um, Don't come to receive unless you discern the body. Cause if you don't, then you eat and drink to your own condemnation. Um, that's something that is perhaps the most egregious thing um, that the Episcopal church does wrong today. Um, that's a broad sweeping statement. Maybe I'll walk it back later, but it's something that really deeply bothers me because it's theologically problematic. It turns the Eucharist into something that it's not. And it basically what it does is it says that um, every person is inherently a child of God when in point of fact, Scripture in Paul's letter to the Ephesians says we are all by nature children of wrath. Our natural 
um, our natural state is not that we are children of God. Our natural state is that we are children of wrath and deserving of damnation. Um, that's why we need a savior is because we have become, or when we were, you know, even when we were in our mother's womb, we were sinful as David says in the Psalms. Hmm. Um, so that that's a bad anthropology and a bad theology. Um, so I think that's worth bringing out a bit more. Um, I would say, uh, obviously, um, with regard to baptism, um, we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, because that's what Jesus told us to do. Mm -hmm. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, go out into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. There's literally no reason to use anything else. If you say God, Son, and Holy Spirit, that has the um, overt quality of Arianism. That the Father is God, but the Son and Holy Spirit are demigods. Um, if you say Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer, that has um, the the problem of partialism or perhaps modalism. If you try and do Mother, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus has a mother. Her name's Mary. Um, he has a father who is the first person of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. Like this is relational language, and I'm sorry if people get upset about the relational language. Or I'm sorry if they think that it's necessary to, quote, remove the patriarchy from scripture or whatever. That's not our responsibility, nor is it a it's a, it's a futile enterprise because Jesus himself, who is um, infallible, is uh, God in the flesh, said. Him, father. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, if you, you if cut you it, you, the zoom cut out for a second, but you, you were talking about how Jesus um use the term father and Abba. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. When you, yeah. When you pray, call God father, um, Jesus is the son and he has a father who is the first person of the Trinity. Mary is his mother. That doesn't mean that the father and Mary had coitus, which is what, um, what the Mormons believe. But uh, <laughs> what it does mean is that this is relational language that's been established by Jesus and it's worth using. And yeah. nothing else is worth using. Um, while the divine essence of the Lord has this is number 59, we'll do the next set and then call it a, I guess we'll probably have to do a part three. We will do a part three, but uh, yeah. so while the divine, this is number 59, while the divine essence of the Lord has no gender, God has revealed himself as he. So he is to be referred to as such. Jesus Christ was, is and forever shall be a man. Thus he always should be referred to in the masculine as doing otherwise denies his historicity and humanity 60 we should be more concerned about our worship language being offensive to god than it being offensive to our worldly culture 61 the church should avoid alliances with any secular political factions uh 62 uh scripture reason tradition and natural law not contemporary culture and politics should be the sole authorities for the church's stances on issues of sexuality and gender 63 the church must strongly condemn adultery extramarital sex or fornication polygamy sexual activity with minors incest rape bestiality 64 the church must strongly condemn pornography 65 there must never be risque or sexually themed displays in the church um 
66 due to not only the teaching of Holy Scripture, but also scientific advancements such as ultrasound technology. It is obvious that abortion is the direct taking um, of a human life. And I'll read one more. The church should support societal efforts to protect the safety of innocence, including the unborn, as well as to encourage the upholding and following of secular laws consistent with Scripture and Christian uh, righteousness. I mean, in general, I agree with them all. There's, there's, you know, there's some things unpacked, and that's, and that's the thing. I hope, like, um, listeners don't take what James and I've been doing as people who like these theses, or maybe who are perhaps signed it. Um, hopefully, you saw in this episode that we're actually seeing how a lot of these uh, are good, or good in the sense that they, they are really bringing up stuff that others would prefer not to talk about, or they're bringing up things that provide for fruitful, good discussion and things that need to be. You know, um, and I think we're doing that uh, right. through this. So we're, I mean, in, in ways we're 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 affirming in many ways the, um, the the concerns behind these theses and the uh, general intent of a lot of it. Um, the last few, again, I, I, I but that said, I mean, the last few were, you know, the church has gotten itself in trouble when it has talked about when it has hyper-focused, whether liberal or conservative, when it's hyper-focused on sex and sexuality. Um, and so I think, again, um, we have to call evil what it is. We have to call, but at the same time, you know, one of every, the stats show probably one of every two people you and I are going to go run run into today on our whatever we're doing has probably looked at porn in the last two weeks mm. um that's not to make an excuse for it but it's also to say that um we need to also preach the, the forgiveness of sins right and not just um and not just whether it's sexual sins any sins we, we don't it's not just about preaching that we condemn something we also need to, to preach the salvation from that right right and um yeah anything you wanted to add to that um i'm just thinking you know like uh, so obviously touching on abortion is um something that is going to set off uh, a lot of people mm -hmm. um, this is clearly taking the conservative position on that and, um, I, you know, I, right. I, these I, are the ones that are going to set off the most people. Right. And again, listeners, James and I didn't write these. Uh, right. Right. <laughs> but, um, but know that, you know, um, that I mean, it's an important issue. Right. And, and the church um, has, um, the, the Episcopal church has, I think, um, uh, overall, um, been an environment where people who do have a, a pro-life understanding are really they really just need to be quiet and not in essay they're they're silenced right um their voices are not heard mm -hmm. you know i thought it was rather astute by the way that um number 62 scripture reason tradition and natural law should be the sole authorities for the church's stance on issues of sexuality and gender I found it interesting because normally people say scripture tradition and reason but the 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 way that they've presented this is actually um, Hooker's way of doing it. It is, yeah. 
Which yeah, natural law, natural law has, there are certain truths. I mean, I do believe in natural revelation or general revelation. Of course, for listeners, we, we, we touched on that concept in past episodes, but it's, um, it's that um, natural law applies to everyone. I mean, it's obviously, it's, it's, it's that, that, you know, people do have a sense of right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, that's innately, but that doesn't mean they do it. That doesn't mean they do right. what's right and avoid what's wrong. But that we have an right. innate what's right and wrong, and and um, that is a way. Uh, uh, that is a way actually of of. That is our moral compass, but it's just we don't know how to navigate um, without further revelation, which comes through, you know, God's special revelation or scriptural revelation to us, right. But yeah, no, I thought that was interesting too. They kind of they use the hookers, um, and some people would say, "Well, isn't I mean, the natural law, law and reason are kind of you know you could have just some just said reason because they're related." But you know, it's it's a good way to there. It's it's a good reminder that there is such thing as natural law, right? Right. Um, let's we probably could do a few more, or how are do you have to get going? Pretty soon. All right. Uh, let's do two more. The <laughs> uh, sixty-eight Christian ministers are to model biblical morals for their congregations and dioceses, and to be held to a high standard of holiness. Sixty-nine bishops should not wield episcopal authority to discipline churches, priests, bishops, or parishioners who have not explicitly rejected the doctrines and practices of Anglican Christianity, who have otherwise done nothing wrong according to biblical morality. Uh, at first, I had I. I was like, do I agree with 69? I don't know. But then actually, after thinking about it, after reflecting on it, like, yeah, I do. Bishops, um, bishops should only discipline um priests and 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 if they're if they violated because I think biblical morality is very it's all encompassing. Mm-hmm. I think every any anything that you know, if a, if a priest does something unbecoming of of a priest, or if a baptized person be you know a Christian be, does anything un, unbecoming of what of a Christian, it's all be it's it's laid out there in in. So I mean, God's desire for all of that is is in Scripture, and mm-hmm. so I, I mean I do believe that in a certain way. I mean, if if you're embezzling money, if you're <laughs> you mean, if you're right. doing anything like that, I mean that's clearly I think biblical morality covers all that, but. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's um, I think that's perfectly fair. And of course, um, what is in likely what's likely behind this is um, the concern about the the mistreatment of Bishop Love in the Diocese of Albany um, that mm-hmm. happened a few years ago, um, because that was about a resolution that was put forward by convention and politically in terms of how uh, our polity works as Anglicans. Resolutions don't have the same effect as um, the Constitution and canons. Resolutions don't have teeth in the same way. And yet um, Bishop Love was treated poorly and was tried by a kangaroo court and was convicted and um, basically forced to step down from his position because he didn't... um, implement a resolution which really had no power of implementation anyway so um that's a that's an issue where it did not pertain to his um immoral behavior his rejection of doctrines and practices of anglican christianity things like that it was a 
political in both senses of our polity and it was a political issue that led to him being treated the way he was. So I think that's probably what's behind number 69 here. Yeah. And I don't, I know you don't have much time. Um, cause I was going to be devil's advocate a little bit. Isn't, um, isn't a general convention resolution though, not to reduce it to like, well, the will of the church gun. Cause if we have like, just, if the church becomes just an absolute pure democracy and anything they want to say, they just vote it into being, and it becomes a thing. Obviously, that's not a sustainable that's not really i think how the true church works as in like god's true church that encompasses <laughs> the invisible church all living in the saints before us obviously that's no way to go about things but um if it truly was a discerned thing <laughs> which james i know you would argue it wasn't right but, i mean at some point in the day we have to have constitutions and canons and it general while there's a legitimate argument to whether a general Convention resolution has the authority that the prayer book has or not. Um, it there's a logical argument to say it doesn't really negate the prayer book understanding. It just expands upon it, mm-hmm. and it is it is a resolution passed by the proper channels. So therefore, it has to be you know um, abided by. Um, I don't want to get you in trouble either, James. So I don't. I don't feel pressure to to answer that. But no, I, I, so like, just... here's another example, right? So, um, General Convention in 2015 put out a resolution, if memory serves, that vestries should not drink alcohol at vestry meetings. Mm-hmm. There's no power of enforcement for that. It's just this is what we think is a best practice for vestries, right? So. That is what's behind the resolution that got Bishop Love in trouble as well. This is what we believe to be best practices. But the trouble is they treated a resolution, which is a a, a third category. You have constitution, you have canons, and then you have resolutions that don't necessarily establish church law. They simply state a particular intention Right. Uh, that's why it says at the end, be it therefore resolved, um, because it's stating a particular intention, but it's not stating that this is what must be abided by. That would be the category of a canon. Sure. So, um, so there, your your argument, and this is the argument I've heard, and I think it's a, a very fair argument that the categories of the categories of um, are being confused of mm-hmm. canon versus resolution. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've heard that. The other, that... The other concern is so, like, uh, we have a, a canon stating that communion is only for the baptized. And yet, many churches. Right. There's inconsistency. Bishops yep. yep. A lot of liberal. Do not uh, observe that canon, that. which actually has power of enforcement. You could be brought up on Title IV charges for doing that. Yeah. But they're willing to prosecute a bishop for right. a violation of a resolution. Yeah but not other bishops for violations of canons. I was right. in the House of Bishops um, in 2015 in the gallery when um, they were discussing some things about communion and the bishops shut down the conversation about um, communion of the unbaptized. One bishop stood up and said, I'd like to put together an informal committee to talk about um, communion of the unbaptized. Um and and how we move towards quote open table, um, that bishop doesn't necessarily support um, communion of the unbaptized, but 
it seems like that bishop probably was leaning in that direction at the very least if they're interested in putting together a, a committee to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if it came, to, if it was clear that that bishop was violating that canon, that bishop could have been brought up on charges and should have been brought up on charges. Because you're right. I mean, we have a constitution and canons for a reason. Right. Um, so if you violate the canons, charges should be brought up. That's just that's just the way it works. That's part of what we've agreed to with the doctrine, discipline and worship of the Episcopal Church when we were ordained. But the same thing doesn't apply to resolutions. And that's why the whole thing was um, rather outlandish. And it established a really, really, really bad canonical precedent. Yeah. Yeah, I get that argument. Um, and I definitely would say, objectively speaking, there is that inconsistency that you brought right. out. Of, I mean, people on one end saying, we're going to prosecute this person over here for that, but we're going to not prosecute. I mean, yeah, that's um, that inconsistency is, is um, yeah, lamentable. But <laughs> on that note, <laughs> so, right. James, have this is great. Have a good Thanksgiving, man. Um, this is a good episode. We talked on about a lot of things, man, including some sensitive things. But if we weren't ever going to talk about sensitive things, I don't know if we'd be true to, you know, the, you know, the, we really are calling. Right. As priests who need to be truth tellers. And also, you know, just the, there wouldn't be a good quality podcast if it was just um not getting into the, you know, more serious discussions. Uh, so. Right. Right. Yeah. All right, brother. Have a good Thanksgiving and um, we will talk to you soon. Blessings. Good. You too, man. Thanks.